All right, so I know that's impossible to see. I don't really expect you to be able to read it up there, but <laughs> I'm going to use um, lots of slides today. And more than you being able to read them off of here, it's more kind of a reference point for where we are in the packet. That's to say the packet's really important today. If you don't have one of these packets of the sentence diagram translation of Ephesians, please grab one. There are some on this back table, and we're going to use this a lot today. So you will need it if you want to follow along. Last week, we talked about uh, the first two verses of the letter to the Ephesians. We just went through the greeting, the introduction. We talked about Paul addressing this letter to the holy ones. And we talked about how the letter to the Ephesians possibly could have been a letter that was circulated through a region rather than just sent to a specific church. We also covered some of the macro design elements that Paul used in the book, the letter to the Ephesians to um, make and reinforce main points of the letter. Today, we're going to get into verses 3 through 14. We're going to start going in and breaking those down. If you remember, last week when we talked about the macro design of Ephesians 1, uh, verses 3 through 14 are poetry. They're a poem. Paul opens with, blessed be God, which is a really common opening for Hebrew Psalms. So he's going to go into this poetry. And verses 3 through 14, not only are they a poem, but they're one long sentence in Greek. In Greek, there are no breaks in this sentence. It's just one long thought. So in this translation, that's a part of the packet on the back table, they've kept verses 3 through 14 as one sentence, which if they didn't have this flow of thought with all the subordinating clauses and all of those things, it would be impossible almost to follow. So another reason that this is helpful is that it is one sentence in Greek, and let's keep it one sentence and see what we get out of that. I think it'll make sense to you. I'm just going to read verses 3 through 14 aloud. And you can follow along in your packet and see if you can follow the flow of ideas in this poem. Blessed be God and Father of our Lord Jesus Messiah, who has blessed us with every blessing of the Spirit in the heavens through the Messiah, because he chose us in him before the foundation of the cosmos, so that we would be holy and blameless before him, in love having predestined us, for adoption and sonship through Jesus Messiah unto himself in accordance with the purpose of his will, resulting in praise for the glory of his grace. That grace which he graced us in the beloved one in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the richness of his grace, which he made abundant for us with all wisdom and understanding, having made known to us the open secret of his will, in accordance with his purpose, that purpose which he planned, which he pre-planned in him for the purpose of arranging the fullness of the times to head up all things together in Messiah, things in the heavens and things in earth, in him, in whom also we have obtained an inheritance." having been predestined in accordance with the plan of the one who works all things according to the decision of his will, so that we would praise his glory. 
We, who were the first ones to hope in the Messiah, in whom also y'all, having heard of the word of truth, the good news of y'all's salvation, in whom also, having believed, y'all were sealed by the promised Holy Spirit, who is the first installment of our inheritance for the redemption of the possession, resulting in the praise of his glory. So to start today, we are going to talk about some of those literary context elements in terms of how is this poem built? That's what we'll cover first. Like I said, it's just one long sentence. There's no breaks between um, thoughts, but it is divided in an interesting way. It has to do with the fact that this is a poem. It's divided into three movements. You can see in your translation, movements one and two are on page one, and movement three is on page two. And these movements are divided by what's called a refrain. And you can see it here. If you're looking at movement one, it's in verse six. And it says, resulting in praise for the glory of his grace. That's refrain one. You'll see it's repeated at the end of movement two, which is verse 12. If you look there, it's highlighted in the same color. Oops. And it says, oh. well, it says resulting in the praise of his grace. If you look at the end of movement two, I don't think I did that slide right. In verse 12, so that we would praise his glory. And at the end of movement three, in verse 14, the refrain says, resulting in the praise of his glory. So these refrains are part of writing poetry. It's like a, a rest, and it breaks an entire poem into stanzas. So that's how this portion of the poem is structured, is using these refrains. And each movement highlights a different actor in the Trinity. Um, each movement highlights one of the members of the Trinity performing the action. So if you look at movement one, you'll see here at the top. Oh, I keep pushing the wrong button. If you look at the top here, it says, blessed be God and father of our Lord Jesus Messiah, who has blessed us with every blessing of the spirit. Do you see how all three members of the Trinity are included right at the beginning of the poem? So then each one is going to be the one performing the action in one of the movements. This first movement, God the Father is the one performing the action. It's God the Father who has blessed us. He's chosen us, predestined us to adoption. God the Father is the actor in the first stanza. If you move to movement two, you will see that in verse six, the actor is right here. It's also highlighted in gray, the beloved one. And this is Jesus. He is the one performing the action in stanza two. The beloved one is the one in whom we have redemption through his blood. He's the one in whom we have the forgiveness of sins and he's made his grace abundant for us. So he's highlighted in the second movement. In the third movement, can you guess who is the one performing the action? The Spirit. 
you go to movement three, so this is verse 13, you'll see highlighted in the same color as the rest of the Trinity is the promised Holy Spirit. He is the one performing the action in this movement. He's the one that has sealed us, and he has given us the first installment of our inheritance. So can you see how this is structured like a poem? It has these three stanzas. In the beginning, it presents the Trinity all together, and then as he moves through each of the movements, he presents each one of them as the one performing the action. It's so well put together and so structured that it's, it's really just quite neat. So that's the structure of the poem. There's one other thing I'd like to highlight before main point, before we get into other stuff. If you remember when we talked about context in our first session on Ephesians, there was the element called literary context, which is what we're talking about now. How the letter is structured, how it's composed, and also how it was created physically. And I said that often letter writers in the New Testament will pack important themes, ideas, and points into the beginning of the letter. And that's exactly what Paul is doing right here in this very interesting section, starting in verse 10. This is highlighted. So verse 10 in your packet is at the bottom of page one. And it says, for the purpose of arranging the fullness of the times to head up all things together in Messiah, things in the heavens and things in earth in him. This is a really important and central theme to Ephesians. It talks so much about unity and about summing all things up in Messiah. Paul is putting this idea at the beginning of his letter, and he is going to expound upon it using many different examples and stories and things. So just remember this, because we're going to talk about it a lot, and we'll go into it more at the end of today as far as specifically what does that mean. Looking at movement one here, you'll see that all the pronouns are us, and we, all the way down through the first page. And it's God doing the blessing, and we and us as receivers. And there's so many important blessings in here that they just broke it out into a list here. So this is the list of blessings that are in 3 through 14. You have election and chosenness, adoption as God's children, grace, Redemption, the forgiveness of sins, knowledge of God's secret purpose, a hope of a future inheritance, and the presence of God's spirit. This is like really dense amount of blessings. And in the class that I took on Ephesians, they referred to this as Christianity's greatest hits album. I mean, like it's all there. There's so many important things. And a lot of these terms, these Christian words, have taken on a significant meaning for a lot of Christians. And they've taken on a meaning that Paul didn't mean when he wrote this. They've misinterpreted what some of these words are. Um, Words like election, chosenness, adoption, and grace. Those can be fairly loaded words for people in the Christian tradition. And that's because they approach this portion of scripture with a different mindset than what Paul did. And um, I'll, I'll just tell you what that is. A lot of these terms have to do with what's called the doctrine of 
predestination or the doctrine of election. And really basic, basic definition of that is it's the belief that God has predetermined some individuals to be saved and go to heaven and some individuals to not be saved and to go to hell. And uh, this doctrine goes that by his foreknowledge, he knew who was going to make that choice, if you can even call it that, and who wasn't. And because he foreknew it, there's no way it could be changed. So the doctrine of predestination says that people are locked in, that they have no free will or choice. They're going to heaven or to hell, and that's already been predetermined. That's the doctrine of predestination. And a lot of people use these scriptures here in verses 3 through 14 to apply to that. And that's not Paul's mindset. Um, These people approach this thinking that this is Paul's mindset. Let me explain this to you. We've looked at this graphic before. This is what they think is in Paul's mind as he begins to talk about uh, predestination, adoption, and election. They think that, okay, we've got God, right? And he's holy and righteous. And then there's me and you, and um, we've got a problem, right? Because we're condemned. We're, We're sinful, and that condemns us. So combining with a holy and righteous God is a big, that's a problem. And it obviously leads to condemnation, at least the bad place, right? But then Jesus came and he made a way through his blood, through his resurrection, that we could be forgiven and we could go to the good place. They take the whole import of the Bible and reduce it, the entire story, to just this graphic. Um, And that is not the mind frame that Paul is in when he's talking about these terms. He's thinking of something completely different. He's thinking of the entire story of the Bible. So let's work that out. This is what he's thinking. And it starts with humanity. So at the beginning of verse 3, the word blessing is used three times. And you can trace the idea of biblical election using the word blessing. So Paul's packing these terms right into the beginning of this poem. Can you think of another time when God is doing a lot of blessing to some humans? Well, there's lots of times, but the one I want to start on is Genesis 1.28, where he is blessing humanity, all of it, through Adam and Eve. He creates Adam and Eve, and he says to them, "Uh, fill the earth and subdue it. Be fruitful and multiply. He's giving them his blessing. Of course, we know what happens is that Adam and Eve choose to seek their own wisdom, and they disobey God. They forfeit the blessing that he has given to them, and everything falls apart. You get to Genesis 6, and they have filled the earth for sure. They've filled it with violence. Human beings have filled the earth with violence, and humanity is then, they're, they're handed over to their own self-destruction, And it all culminates at the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. Rather than spreading out and filling the land like God told them to, they make a decision in their rebellion to stay together and to make a great name and a great city for themselves in their pride. And they're going to build this tower that reaches to heaven in rebellion to God. So for a lot of reasons, that's really bad. And in judgment, 
God scatters them. But inside of this judgment is also a mercy because out of the scattering emerges one family, the family of Abraham. And he's the next portion of the biblical story. So you have Abe up there. So the family of Abraham, what's happened so far? God has blessed humanity. They have forfeited the blessing. And now God's plan becomes to bless his enemies because that's his character. He loves and he's going to bless his enemies, which at this point are humans because they've rebelled. So he's planning to bless his enemies. He's going to use the family of Abraham to do it. Abraham inherits the blessing that was given at the very beginning that was forfeited by Adam and Eve. And this is what it sounds like. See if you can trace the vocabulary in here. It's really right on the surface. Genesis 12, 2 through 3 says, And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you. And the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Can you hear the word blessing? This is where we get into the biblical concept of election. And the definition of that is God chooses one out of the many so that through that one, he can restore his blessing back to the many. He has chosen Abraham, the family of Abraham, out of the many, and he's going to use him to restore blessing to the nations. He didn't just say, I'm going to bless you and only you, and you're only, this is it. He said, I'm going to bless all the nations through you. He's beginning to use Abraham's family as the vehicle to restore the blessing to the nations. And that's the concept of biblical election. Not just selecting the one, and this is the only one that's going to be saved and blessed. But God is going to choose, he's choosing to bless his enemies. He's going to restore that to all of humanity through Abraham. And when election and predestination are applied in this top story, it's a real problem. Because when you talk about God choosing human beings, choosing individuals, well, then that's naturally going to apply to me or you. And then what is the result of God's choice? Well, it's the big stuff that matters. So if he's choosing me or choosing you, it means, well, I'm going to go to heaven and what are you going to do? I mean, it creates like a really kind of big tangled problem for a lot of people. And that is not Paul's mindset. It's not about individuals being chosen for salvation or for condemnation. That is not the biblical idea of election. I feel like I'm repeating myself a lot because I feel strongly about it. (laughs) But it's the truth. He's selecting one out of the many so that he can restore the blessing to the many. Paul is thinking in terms of the story of the whole Bible. So then, through Abraham, you have the family of Israel, right? Um, Exodus says that the Israelites multiplied. It's the same language of blessing. They multiplied. They were numerous. In fact, they were so numerous that the Egyptians found them to be a nuisance because they had been blessed. They were numerous and they were filling the land. You can trace that blessing language of election down into the story of Israel. So how does Israel do in extending God's blessing to the nations? The whole story of the Old Testament is it's not great. 
a lot of time they bring down blessing or they bring down curse and death not only on themselves but they also bring it down on their neighbors as well included in this blessing of Israel is that the line the blessing gets even more filtered down and it starts coming through the line of David where God says that he's going to raise up a descendant after David and he's going to establish this descendant's throne and kingdom forever. So you get to that point, you've got a double plot conflict. You've still got a problem with humanity. They're still in rebellion. They're still fallen. And now the vehicle that was supposed to store, restore the blessing to the nations is also broken down and is itself enmeshed in the humanity problem because they are human. They're never going to be able to measure up to the righteous requirements of God. Double plot conflict. Um, they're in, the, um, in Psalms, in Psalm 72, there's talk, so much talk about the one to come, the prophet to come. And this is Jesus, the Messiah. And in Psalm 72, he's described as a king. And it says about him, may his name endure forever. May his name continue as long as the sun shines. In him may all nations be blessed. May they call him blessed. So in this language reply, uh, applied to the Messiah, you can see in him all the nations are going to be blessed, and in turn they will look at him and say, you are the blessed one. You can trace the language. It's moving, it's getting smaller and smaller. It's being whittled down to one, one figure, the Messiah. What God called people and then Israel to do becomes focused down to the Messiah, one figure. Not only is he the completion of Israel's story, he is the blessing restored to all nations. The Messiah solves both problems. He was the one from the many who brought the blessing back to the many. So this was Paul's framework as he thought about election. This thing down here, this is his framework as he's talking about God choosing, God predestining and electing people. That's what he's talking about. And so many times in verses three through 14 of the first chapter of Ephesians, Paul is gonna use the words in him, in the Messiah, through the Messiah. He does it 11 times. He's doing this to drive home the point that all of this blessing comes through Messiah. The, he is the elect one. He is the chosen one. It's all come down to the one figure, and all people, whether Jew or Gentile, only find their hope in the Messiah. All comes down to what Jesus did. So this ele um, election language... <clears throat> Just to drive this home about, I need a drink of water. What Paul meant, he uses this in other places in the New Testament. And in those places, he also applies it to Israel, the family of Israel. Let's look at a couple examples of that. Romans is rich with this kind of language. <clears throat> So this is chapter 9, verse 4, and I've underlined um, these words that are that kind of election language that help you relate and see that Paul is talking about a biblical concept of election, about the family of Israel restoring the blessing to all the nations. 
The people of Israel, theirs is the adoption as sons, theirs the divine glory and the covenants, theirs the giving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them proceeds the human descent of Christ, who is God over all, forever worthy of praise. Amen. So you can see that language right there applied to Israel, not applied to an individual going to heaven or hell, but applied to the chosen family of Israel. Continuing on, it is not as though God's word had failed, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel, nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it is not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. For this was how the promise was stated. At the appointed time, I will return, and Sarah will have a son. Not only that, but Rebekah's children were conceived at the same time by our father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born, or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose and election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. You can see right there. So in order that God's purpose and election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, because it's God's pleasure, and this is the way he's going to do it. This is his purpose in election to select these out of the many to restore blessing through them. And as we've talked about before, I feel like this is going to be a broken record, but where do you think Paul's ideas of biblical election come from? We've talked about it a little bit already, but they come from his Old Testament. That was his media, right? That's what he was raised on and he was immersed in. So anytime he's using language we're curious about, we should always go back and look at the Old Testament to seek out context for what that meant to Paul and what he's trying to communicate to us. Tons of election language in Deuteronomy, like a lot of it. This is chapter 7, verse 6. For you are a people, holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your ancestors that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So it's all right there. He didn't do it because they had some merit that earned it, but it was his choice. It was his calling. It was his purpose and election to do these things. And this language can be traced all the way down to the Messiah. Um, uh, that, uh, let's see. Oh, at Jesus' baptism. When um, Jesus is being baptized and God says, this is my beloved son. In him I am pleased. This is the declaration of Jesus being the chosen one, the elect one, the one who will be the blessing to all nations. That when the people are in the Messiah, by virtue of him being the elect one, they become elect ones because they are in the Messiah. So going back to Ephesians 1. 
If you look at your first page here, and even your, into your second page, there are a bunch of pronouns. You'll see, oh, this is like too small for me to even circle them. But you'll see us and we all through the entire first page. Us and we, us and we. And then there's a shift as you get to verse 12 that's actually really interesting. Because as you read through verses 3 through 14, you see we and you think, okay, well, I'm a believer in Jesus. I'm in Messiah, so this is for me. And, and it is. It is for you. But wait. We have to go the long way around and figure out how we come by all of these blessings here. And Paul is talking to two groups here in Ephesians 3 through 14 and throughout the entire letter to the Ephesians. There's two groups. First of all, in this first portion, verses 3 through 12, 3 through 11, Paul is talking to believing Jews. He's talking about believing Jews. And he makes a switch that's really important because he's also talking to the Gentiles. If you flip your page to verse 12 in your packet, you'll see the switch. So he's right here and he's saying, we, which is what he's been saying the whole time, we who were the first ones to hope in the Messiah. That is the roadmap of Acts. Jesus, when he sends out the 12, he says, go first to the lost sheep of Israel. Paul talks about the gospel in terms of first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. So it makes perfect sense for Paul to be saying about believing Jews, we who were the first to hope in the Messiah. Here's the switch where you can see that he's talking to two groups. It's in verse 12, where he says, in whom also... There it is. I lost my place. Sorry. In whom also y'all, the Gentiles, having heard the word of truth, the good news of y'all's salvation. So it's right here. There's a switch. We, and then it becomes y'all. He switches from talking about believing Jews to talking about y'all, Gentiles. And this is important to differentiate between the two groups because he talks later about them becoming one, which is an important part of the entire letter. So in verse 12, when he switches from we to y'all, he talks about how the blessing is extended to the Gentiles. He says, y'all also having believed were sealed by the promised Holy Spirit. And he is the first installation of your inheritance. So it starts with the Jews, but the blessing is also extended to the Gentiles, and both of them are in Messiah. They both come into Messiah by grace through faith in Jesus. So they're all swimming in the same pool. So that's how we come into the blessing of verses 3 through 11, is being in Messiah. But there's two groups Paul's talking to here. So with the uh, us and y'all, this is just to drive that point home. If it wasn't already obvious about the two groups, he goes on in chapter 2 right here to just outright address it. He says, therefore, remember that at one time, y'all, the Gentiles. So he's saying the y'alls, that's an address to the Gentiles. Y'all, the Gentiles in the flesh who were called uncircumcised by what is called the circumcised, what is performed by the hands in the flesh. So he's talking about these two groups. And the neat thing about him talking about two groups is that 
He reconciles them to each other. He brings unity between them, and he makes them one. And let's see. Verses 4 through 16, he talks about the Jew and the Gentile becoming one. This is chapter 2. For he himself is our peace, the one who made the two into one, and having destroyed the barrier of the wall, the enmity in his flesh, having set aside the Torah of commandments and decrees, in order that he might create in himself the two into one new humanity, making peace, and that he might reconcile to God the two by means of one body through the cross, having killed the enmity in himself. So all of the blessings of 3 through 14 are extended to the Gentiles. So you might think, what is the point even in talking about how we get there? Because it's ours anyway, and we're just going to read it like we did before we knew that there was two groups, so why does it matter? It matters because it highlights something that Jesus did in his victory. And any time I get a chance to talk about the victory of Jesus in terms other than your personal salvation and mine, which is so important. But that's so much of what we focus on. So when we get a chance to talk about what he did other outside of that, I always want to highlight that. And he brought unity um, between Jews and Gentiles. We're both in Messiah, and he is the elect one. And, um, and they are elect ones. And he, it's just an awesome story of how God's choosing and his election got whittled down through failure and death and all of these things. He was always keeping his promises. And it came all the way down to one figure, Jesus. And he had the victory. So it's all getting smaller. And then you have the victory of Jesus. And then there's an explosion of family. Like, the spirit goes out from there, and the church begins to build and become this living temple. And it's a total reversal of failure and death that happened when Jesus was resurrected. And I think that's such powerful imagery because the Jew and Gentile become one, but they're still distinct you see how they're distinct groups. They're two different groups, but in spite of that, they're united in Messiah. So Jesus doesn't bring uniformity. He doesn't make us all the same. He doesn't make us all exact little clones and replicas of each other so that we can get along. He unites us in spite of our differences. He unites us in spite of the fact that we are distinct people because he's above all of it. He's greater than all of it. He's going to sum up Everything will be summed up in him. And the rift between Jew and Gentile, I don't know that there is a bigger one than that. The Jews spent thousands of years becoming a distinct people and being separate from Gentiles. I mean, if you look at the New Testament and the context there about the Samaritans and how Jews felt about them, that they were polluted. And um, to see these two people becoming one new human in Jesus and being united in a church is so important because it's about the fundamental rifts that we still experience in humanity. Is there anything bigger than ethnic division still in the world? I mean, it's the cause of almost all violence 
hate, death. And so this is such an example to us of overcoming that in Messiah. For those who are in Messiah through grace by faith, there is no longer this division. There's no longer, well, you're that and I'm this. We're united in Messiah. And when you think about that, all of a sudden, it it takes on a completely different meaning to think what it is to malign your own brother or your own sister in the Lord, to treat them like there's something that they're not. It, it means that you're maligning the work of the Messiah. So it's no longer just about be nice. You know, you have to be nice if you're going to be a church person and a believer. There's so much more to it than that. He reconciled you back to God, but he also reconciled you to your brothers and sisters in spite of your differences. And that carries a lot of weight. It's a big deal because it's the work that he did. Let's move on and talk about that verse in um, those verses 9 and 10 that I talked to, that I said we were going to highlight in the beginning. This is an important theme, and it's an interesting idea. I'll just read it to you starting in verse 9. He made known to us the open secret of his will in accordance with his purpose, that purpose which he pre-planned in him, in the Messiah, for the purpose of arranging the fullness of the times to head up all things together in Messiah, things in the heavens and things in earth. So this phrase, to head up all things, in Greek it means a summing up of all parts as a comprehensive whole. It's actually a math term in Greek. So you have all of these different things and you're adding them all up together into one thing. And if something is comprehensive and it's summed up, it's in unity. It's in, it's in harmony. That's the idea that's pointed to here. There's one other use of this word, and it's in Romans. This will help make sense of what is meant by this. Romans 13, 9. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and whatever the other command there may be are summed up in this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. So you can see those first ones listed aren't done away with, but they're brought into this comprehensive whole and added together in this last command. So that's the same term that he's using here when he's talking about all things being summed up in the Messiah. And he's going to drive this point home. He's going to, Paul is going to talk about terms like make one. He's going to talk about unify and together all throughout the letter to the Ephesians. And he's expressing the idea that the entire cosmos, all of creation, the whole created universe is in some sort of a state of disunity that we probably can't even perceive because we've never lived in a perfectly ordered cosmos. Um, There's this implication that Things will change in such a way when they're summed up under Messiah that it's truly going to be more than we could ask or imagine. Like, we can't even perceive what that's going to be like. So moving on to, um, let's go back to where it says, in Messiah. This is an important point. So phrases like, in him and in Messiah are repeated over 20 times throughout the letter to the Ephesians. Jesus is the focal point of God's purposes, and all who come to him in faith are in him. 
And being in him is where believers find their true identity and the power to live as a new creation. And through him, believers begin to participate in bringing heaven's reign on earth right now as they wait with hopeful, hopeful expectation for the fulfillment of all things that's talked about here in this verse. So all things will be headed up together in Messiah, things in the heavens and things on earth. What are things in the heavens? What's going to be headed up under Messiah in the heavens? So there's spiritual beings and powers that are in rebellion to God, and they're in rebellion to humanity, to exalted humanity with Jesus. And uh, Jesus is going to deal with them. They have already been defeated, but in the fulfillment, they will be dealt with in an ultimate way. Um, Verse 21 says that Jesus has been exalted to the right hand of God above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is named in this age and the one to come. So people living as the new creation with the spirit dwelling inside of them through Jesus, they declare the subjugation of these principalities and powers in the heavenly realms. The fact that Jesus has created a people for himself through the spirit of Jesus and that they are unified in spite of their differences and that they live and are constantly being transformed through the spirit to look more and more like Jesus. You living like that is a declaration to powers and principalities that they are done, that they have been defeated. The fact that you are empowered to do that is that declaration. That's what your life is. Isn't that incredible? Do you think about that on a regular basis? I mean, we have to pray that we would receive a deeper revelation of that. I mean, there's so much power in that thing. When I think about it, I just run it over and over again in my mind in the same terms because I, I just want to grasp it. I just want to get that in me. Chapter 3 says that the wisdom of God is made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavens by the very existence of the church. Chapter 6 says that these powers are still in rebellion, but that God gives the power for his church to stand in resistance to them and to gain ground even in their face. So what does it mean for all things to be headed up in Messiah, all things on earth? This is talking about people. People who at one time were lost, they were dead in sin, and they were alienated from God through faith, When they come into faith in Jesus, they're now reconciled to him, to God through the Messiah. They're also reconciled to each other, like I talked about before. We we put so much emphasis, because it's important, on being reconciled back to God. Of course, that is paramount. But I also love this portion about how we're reconciled to each other. Because none of us are the same. We're all so different. And our relationships are rife with opportunities for conflict but we've been reconciled back to each other because we're in Messiah. And that's important. We should keep that in mind. He's put to death the hostility between them and his body, and they're united in spite of their differences in the flesh. They don't all become the same. They don't all become uniform. We'll always have our differences, whether it's in, you know, what we find fun or in our convictions or maybe our slight different interpretations of scripture. We'll always have those differences. But in spite of that, we are unified in the Messiah. We are to live as his body, as his church, as his bride, and to make that declaration with our lives that Jesus has the ultimate victory over it all.
and all things are going to be summed up in him. Let's pray. Lord, there's, <laughs> there's so much to be thankful for. Um, just give us more, Lord. Just increase our revelation. Just in- increase power. Move through us powerfully, Lord. If there's any way in which we have not yielded to you or we are distracted, Lord, I pray you would just root it out. We would throw off the things that are so unnecessary that we just don't need. We would fix our eyes on you, Lord. We would lay our hands to the plow and go forward in the power of your spirit and the power of your victory. What you've won for us, Lord. Help us to stand firmly in our identity as your people, as restored to relationship with you, Lord. Help us to live it out, to make that declaration to have faith in every situation that we meet, that what you say is true, Lord. And we thank you for all that you're doing, all that you've done, Lord, and what is to come. In Jesus' name, amen.